Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner with Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and I have in studio with me Cody Beeson, who is helping to run the boards and provide comedic relief. I've got my partner, Adam Hanson, and his son, Dominic. And across the table from me, I have my son, Wesley, and my daughter, Gracie. Dominic is going into his senior year, correct? No, his junior year. Okay. Welcome, Dominic. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And Gracie is in college. She goes to BYU-Idaho, and she's in her junior year. And Wesley just graduated from Gila Ridge High School and will be heading to Sweden in August to serve a two-year mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So we have a great group of people here, some guests, and uh, they're all here as by special invitation to help us understand this profound message that was conveyed in a letter or an essay that was written by uh, a Mr. Hubbard. He wrote this in one day. And what's interesting about this, his name is Albert Hubbard. He was born in the 1800s, but he was a businessman. And what he, he did is he was having a discussion with his children over the dinner table about the Spanish-American War. Now, the Spanish-American War, for those of you that need a little bit of a reminder, occurred in 1898. And so in 1899, he's sitting there having a discussion about the war and who were the true heroes of the war. And his son brought up the fact that um, it was really the American uh, lieutenant who brought a message to the General Garcia, who was leading the rebellions, the, Cubis, the Cuban rebellions, against uh, the Spanish, who currently were um, in rule over Cuba at the time. And he, he said that he was a true hero because he was able to get President McKinley in communications with this general despite all odds and without asking any questions or have, having to go through any special ops or assistance to get it done. And so if you haven't read the pamphlet, and it really is, it's a small pamphlet, it's three pages long, and uh, it's entitled A Message to Garcia. It was printed in 1899, and since then it has been the most published pamphlet and most widely distributed literary piece of work except for the Bible, throughout the world. Millions and millions of copies have been distributed throughout the world and affected many people's lives. So what is so important about this message to Garcia? Well, let's turn to our special guests. They've each read it, and uh, I want to hear what impressed them most when they read the message. So, First, who wants to give a brief synopsis about what the, what the pamphlet talks about in this message to Garcia, what it is that's happening, the events that are occurring? I can talk a little bit about it. So we have Hubbard, who's just discussing the work ethic um, that it takes for something as simple as a letter to be delivered. And he talks about 
a lot of the things that hold people back from actually getting the work done, the excuses that are created. And he gives a few examples of what the modern workforce looks like when it comes to looking for good help and how something seemingly like as menial as delivering a letter can be kind of shrugged off because people aren't willing to work. So what's going on here? What is this message to Garcia? The message to Garcia is in the Spanish-American War of 1898 to 18... Yeah, it started, as far as I know, it started and ended in 1898. Yeah, Mm -hmm. April to August. So what the general needed was to receive a letter, and he... It was in dire need of someone to send it to him. And when requested, this soldier didn't ask for any direction, didn't ask where this general was or how he could find him or how long it would take or how urgent it was. He merely took this letter and traveled to Garcia. Yeah, so the president at the time was President McKinley. And he wanted the Cubans to obtain their freedom, their independence from Spain. And he knew that Garcia was leading the rebel forces. But he didn't know how to communicate with Garcia. He was up in the mountains somewhere, hidden away. And um, this secrecy of his location was really important. Otherwise, the Spanish forces would find him out and kill him and and suppress the, the revolution. So... He needed somebody to be able to find his location without disclosing it to the enemy or anybody else and get him a message that the Americans were behind them, that they would support them in their war efforts. And so he asked his chiefs of staff, who can do this? And they said, if anybody can do it, it is Lieutenant Andrew Rowan. So McKinley says, bring Rowan here. And he prepares this message for General Garcia Andrew Rowan puts it into a special pouch, waterproof pouch, and four days later lands on the coast of Cuba. Three weeks later, he navigates through hostile territory in these jungles and emerges on the other side of the island to be picked up, and the letter has been delivered to Garcia. He reports this back to McKinley, and now they're in communication, And the rest, like they say, is history. So what is the point of all this? Let's ask our special guest. What did you get out of that very simple, not just an analogy, but that that process in in which this course of events took place? Um, I got that. So first of all, they knew that Rowan beforehand that he could do it. So he, it, I'm assuming that he's done stuff like this before where they would ask him to do something. He doesn't ask how or where is the person. He just goes and does it. So that'll stick out to somebody. Um, and, yeah, also it says he, doesn't, he didn't ask where is he at. Like he doesn't, he doesn't ask stupid questions like that. He just gets it done. Yeah, and right after he tells the story, the author, Albert Hubbard, says, Reader put this to the test. If you are an employer or a manager, you have anybody that's under your direction, ask them to do a simple task. Ask them to get, let's say, a document to an individual by the next day and test them. See if they are 
like a Rowan, or if they're like what he feels a majority of the working class is today, and that is somebody that will do just enough not to get fired, um, but nothing more than that. And so he asks a series of questions. He says, the person that you ask will maybe say, well, who, who are they? Who am I delivering this letter to? Or what type of service should I use? Should I use USPS? Should I use um, Federal Express? Should I use UPS? Should I do it overnight? Should I do it return receipt requested? Uh, are they dead? Are they alive? What is the message about? Was I hired to do this? Can't somebody else do this? Can't Karen do this? Maybe they are a Karen. <laughs> All of these different questions, and by the time they get done with the questions, you could have easily put the message in some type of envelope, chosen the carrier service, and gotten it out to the person that you need to get it to. And that's the problem with society today, is that everybody wants the, the pay and the benefits of the CEOs of the individuals that own the businesses. But nobody wants to take the responsibility of getting a message to Garcia of saying, it doesn't matter what obstacles lie in my way, I'm going to get it done. Now, we've got a series of different generations here. Gracie is going to be our generational expert here and tell us each what generation we are. So I was born in 1978, so that makes me... You're Gen X. I'm Gen X, okay? I think that's right after the greatest generation, right? That's, or, or as far as quality of uh, generational purposes? Well, we have baby boomers right before Gen X. Ah, okay. So we've, we've got um, the greatest generation. The silent generation, baby boomers, then we have Gen X from 65 to 79. So why do we call the greatest generation the greatest generation? When were they born? That is 1901 to 1924. Okay. So they were born, so if they were born in that period, then they were fighting age during World War I and World War II. And they carried the world through those great conflicts and were enabled to allow freedom and the American experiment to remain in existence. And that's why we call them the greatest generation. They sacrificed all for their um for their country and for their families and for the idea of freedom okay so we got the silent generation and i guess it's um self-defining but the the baby booners are when everybody comes back from the war and is real happy to see their girlfriend and wife and uh, we got a lot of babies from that yeah um and then after gen x we have the millennials from 1980 to so, so gen x is my generation mm -hmm. So my generation is a mixed bag here. Um, the baby boomers, I would say, are, were, are known for hardworking. They've continued to live the American dream. They've gone out. They've gotten jobs. They've been given great educational opportunities because their parents were given a lot of... Um, they, they helped them understand the benefit of hard work and sacrifice. And so they would go to school or they would go and learn a trade and they would apply themselves to that trade. So the baby boomers have actually produced a lot of the wealth and prosperity that we enjoy today. They are now all retiring. Adam and I work with that generation 
day-to-day on a daily basis, those are the people that we're doing estate planning for. I would love to do estate planning for a lot younger people, a lot more Gen Xs, but it's the baby boomers that see the need for it. And our typical age group is about 60 to 80 years old, and so those are the baby, baby boomers. Now you got Gen X, that's me. I don't think it's Adam yet, is it? No. Okay, so Adam, you're born in what? I was born in 83. It's a millennial. I'm a millennial. No, I'm not. I'm Adam's a, a millennial. Okay, that, oh, that right there. I just had an epiphany. No, I'm not. Explained so much. I'm on the fringe. I could go e- either way. Well, Actually, he's start- on the fringe. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, you're kind of in the middle. You are. <laughs> <laughs> you just ruined my day. <laughs> a millennial. So Gen X, I would say they understand the need for school but also the need to work after school. That school, it's perceived when you get your degree as a ticket for success, but they sobered up pretty quickly after graduating school and realized that they have to work to actually generate the income to pay back their student loans, as the Supreme Court has decided is legally required, and um, to make their own way. Now, they have been born in this era of prosperity, so they, they get to benefit from the sacrifice of the greatest generations and from the work ethic of the baby boomers, but they, they still work, and they still, I think there's this um, spark of the American dream still in them. Now, when we get to millennials... The American dream is more like an American fantasy. And, and I say that because they feel a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to everything my parents had and more. But they don't see what their parents went through. They don't see the work that their parents went through. Why don't you say that to my face? I am saying it to your <laughs> face. <laughs> so, what, Do you disagree with that, Adam? I don't identify as millennial. Okay, so... but. Millennials in general, what do you see? Pros and cons. What? what, what, what? I think you characterize it perfectly. I so, think they're riding on the coattails of those that came before them, and they feel entitled to something. Okay, but now we have progressed significantly from individuals that were born in the '80s and beyond. I mean, we've got the Zuckerbergs out there, and they have provided Facebook and social media and ways to communicate. We've got the internet, and 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 the millennials are those who understand it and have seen a world that existed before it. So they're kind of right in the middle. They understand technology, but they understand what it was like without it. So what can you see that comes from that benefit, that, that vision? I think uh, progress technologically. I think um, we're not curbed by somebody saying, well, you can't do that because we've never done that before. I think um, like you've got... Like you mentioned, you have uh, Zuckerberg, you've got uh, Elon Musk. He's probably in your generation. Yeah. They're right on the fringes. I think Zuckerberg is a millennial. Um, but these are guys that uh, push the envelope. They don't take no for an answer. And uh, Elon was born in a different country and grew up under different circumstances. So I, I'm sure that drives a little bit of what he does. He's probably, I don't know his background very much, but I, I think his family was semi-wealthy in South Africa, but I don't think they were, you know... I believe his dad was an engineer, but he was very neglectful and abusive to his mother. Um, 
but either way, he he is a self-made man. He went to Canada, got an education, came down to the United States, further his education. But really, his education was just purely paper to compare to what he did on his own. we got to take a break here. We'll be back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking about work ethic. We're talking about the American dream. We're talking about what it takes to realize the American dream. And um, I think that a lot of the millennials today and um, Gen Z, mm-hmm. is, it was what comes after millennials. When, when's Gen Z born? So Gen Z is 95 to 2012. Okay, so you guys are all Gen Z. Mm-hmm. So you were born in? 2002. Wesley? 2005. Dominic? 2007. Okay, so you're Gen Zers. Now when you look around... What do you see as far as the expectation of your peers as they go throughout society and try to make their mark on the world? Um, I feel like they put so much value on a college degree when in reality that's only half of it. You have to implement the hard work, the hard work yourself into, uh, to be able to be successful in life. Yeah. Um, they talk about that in a message to Garcia, that it's not book learning that people need necessarily. It's a will, like a, a, a good, strong spine and a will and mentality to get things done despite all the obstacles and in spite of all the odds. And not only there are real world odds, there are sicknesses out there. There are impediments that are put in your path. There are people that want to, you know, climb over you and stab you in the back when they're climbing the corporate ladder. Those are real things. But I think that the biggest obstacle for your generation is the victim mentality that you are fed day after day after day. That if you don't have everything that you want, that that's somebody else's fault. And it's not only something that you need, but it's something that you're entitled to. Entitlement, I think, is the biggest scourge on our society for Generation Z right now. Now, that, that's me looking at it from a parent's point of view and from an employer's point of view. But um, rebut me if, I, if, if you feel differently. Wesley, Gracie, Dominic? 
I feel like most of what you said is right, that a lot of us is, a lot of Gen Zers are thinking that they deserve a lot more than we have right now. But I think specifically with my peers and my friends, there is a lot of, I understand I need to do this work for myself. So it's, it's a big mix, honestly. I think it's a mix more that we're entitled, but it's also a good mix of what the millennials feel because we also think that we all, some of my friends also understand hard work. They're not afraid. One of my friends is in Alaska right now because he's working 12 hours a day, five to six days a week. He understands hard work and he's doing would, that. Would you say that he's mainstream? Would you say that he fits in with the majority, the popular group in your high school? Cause he, he went to high school with you, right? He did. So is he normal? No, he's definitely a, yeah so he's working in alaska who got him the job i think he was looking for himself he did yeah and and that's the point here is i there are so many individuals out there they want the pay of the ceo of the business owner but they don't want to work till midnight and they don't want to get up at five in the morning to get all the things done in order to provide the tasks necessary for the employers to get their hourly wage and to have a job. They want to exist. They want to wake up in the morning and have it on their own time at their own location and when they feel good and ready. And it needs to fill some void that they have that, uh, that create, that fills this, uh, sense of creativity and sense of self instead of selflessness. And I think that is the biggest problem that we have, is that this sense of selflessness is necessary. It's, it's the opposite of selfishness. That these kids, they don't realize it, but they're selfish to the core, or otherwise rotten to the core. Spoiled, rotten. We use that phrase a lot growing up. And my parents would say to one another, if my mom would give me something that my dad didn't think was necessary or didn't earn, he says, you're spoiling him. Now, that term didn't really sink in until later on. Spo- well, what happens to something that's spoiled? Is it useful anymore? It could have been. Like an apple could be very useful. It could be delicious and nutritious. But if it's spoiled to the core, it's no good. So we've talked about different generations and you use generalizations. And as I was listening to you, I, I mean, I agree with most of it in general, but I think um, as you talk about different individuals, I think it's on an individual level and we, it's easy to say Gen Z acts like this or they have this mentality. It's easy to say baby boomers acted like this because their parents were hard on them. And so as a consequence, they were softer on their kids, which created Gen X and, and uh, millennial generations. That's in my mind, an easy way to categorize people, but at the same time, it's really, in reality, individualized. I mean, it depends on your circumstances and your upbringing, ultimately what you actually kind of have inside. I think I don't think people are innate or born with an ability to be or have grit. I think that's something that's developed through time, and I think oftentimes we get frustrated. What do you think contributes the most to the, the individual's personality and outlook on life? Home life. It's number one. I mean, I think that would solve probably 100% of our problems in the United States and world if our home lives were better. If you had um, 
one man, one woman, you know, as, as mom and dad at home, you don't have multiple relationships. And I understand that's radical to say, and it, it's my maybe incendiary, but at the same time, that helps. And you've seen it, Sean, in your own life. You had a mom and a dad. I had a mom and a dad. My mom died really early on, but I had a little glimpse of what that could look like. And all the experiences that you had with your dad were were formation building experiences. And the ones that you had with your mom were formation building experiences. And, and you grew up in a certain way and acted a, you act a certain way because of those tendencies and things like that, that you saw example exemplified through your dad and through your mom. And uh, we were talking just the other day and hopefully you don't mind that I share this, but you and you told me that you and, and Brittany, your wife, were talking about how you like to stay up late at night and do these projects. And your dad was the same way. And you just yeah. naturally do that. Yeah. My wife would consistently get frustrated with me because she would wait for me to come to bed. And normally after I get home from work and do the family routine of eating dinner we do scripture study every night, and then I read to my boys out of, um, generally it's a historical fiction book like Where the Red Fern Grows or something like that, and that takes about a half an hour. By the time I'm done with that whole routine, it's 9.30 p.m. She's ready to get in bed or watch an episode of TV and then get in bed. I'm antsy because I've been sitting in the office all day, and I need to get out and, and be physically productive. I need to see something done and, and make something with my hands. So number one, yeah, and I agree with that. I think as you were talking and we were talking about differences between generations, I think, yeah, in general, you could probably make these broad sweeping classifications of how people act. But at the same time, you're going to have outliers in there. And I, I, what makes a person an outlier, going back to the letter or message uh, to Garcia, that individual, Rowan, had something that drove him to be, quote unquote, a winner. He was going to win under any circumstance, winning in the sense of he was he was going to accomplish that task. So is a person born with that or are they taught that? Do they develop that because of things that they've seen in their life around them as they're growing up in their upbringing? I don't know the answer to that question. It feels like, Sean, you and I, having done this for a long time, where we've employed people, every time, every once in a while you'll get two or three of these people um, that, that show tendencies to get the job or task done no matter the circumstance. And um, then you have the majority of people that don't. They punch in at 8 o'clock, punch out at 5 o'clock. They tend to get exactly what's put in front of them done according to the time frame that we require. Otherwise, they wouldn't continue to work here. But other than that, don't contribute anything more than would would fulfill their scope of employment. I think, um, so going back to that victim mentality idea, you have to be careful, in my opinion, you have to be careful of classifying myself as something or identifying myself as something and using that as a crutch or an excuse. And so I'm a millennial. I just found out today. <laughs> and now to, I want to go back to bed. You're I'm not going to get up until yeah, one. You're going to have to grapple with I, that a Now I'm bit. a millennial, and now I know that. So <laughs> I... That makes a lot of sense. But you know, here's here's the positive spin on both millennials and Gen Z, okay? Millennials grew up in a time before the internet, or at least had um, their adolescence before the internet and before all this technology boom came out. And when it came out, 
they loved it. They grabbed onto it and they saw how it could intermingle with the everyday tasks that we have to do. And they have produced the things that make all of our lives so much easier. The apps that we use on a daily basis where you can say, hey, Siri, um, put eggs on my grocery list. And it, and it does it. So the millennials see the need for the practical aspect of life and the day-to-day things that will help us move on and, and, and focus on more important things. And they use that technology and implement it to do it. And, and that's exactly what's happened in our firm. This firm has been around for ne- nearly 50 years. And up until 15 years ago, we were using shorthand to take notes on the interviews that we did with our clients. And we were passing the file around in physical form and printing it out physically drafts. And after the fourth or fifth draft got done and the the file was about four or five inches thick, we got the final version, which was provided to the client. Now that worked. It got things done. But when I came into the office, I saw a little glimpse of how technology could help that be better and and doing the drafts digitally when you came into the firm adam things really started to become streamlined and not only do we use much much less paper but we are three to four times more productive than we were 15 years ago and that's not a slam on the people, our predecessors that were here before us. What that is, is it's an implementation of how technology can help get something substantive done and appreciate it for what usefulness it is, rather than just putting on um, a headset or what are those goggles called? Like VR VR goggles, yeah. And losing yourself in the matrix, right? it, It applies technology to a practical... Um, worthwhile, productive process. So you used a word that most listeners probably, you, you went so fast over it, they, they probably didn't even understand what you're saying or recognize it, but you used the word shorthand. So kids, do you even know what that is? Shorthand? Yeah. Have you heard of that before? I mean, I've heard of it, but I know it's, it's more specific than just, okay, I'm going to write this. Yeah, I think the quick the quick thing that comes to mind is, oh, if I'm going to write this long word, I'm just going to shorten it into a little word. Dominic, do you know what it is? Uh, no. <laughs> he said no. Um, so shorthand is actually a language. It's a way of writing. So we would have a paralegal come in, and we would dictate to them, meaning we would speak to them. I met with so-and-so, and we talked about this, that, or the other. And the whole time, she's just scribbling down. But it looks like like hieroglyphs. It's just symbols. Yeah. And it's the most fascinating thing. I bring it up because I'm interested. I was always interested in it. Yeah. And it's an art. You have to go and you have to learn this and memorize this whole alphabet. And um, it was just fascinating to me that they could write down what I'm saying. And sometimes I would test them, like, read it back to me because you're looking at it and it's just symbols. You yeah. Know? And they would read it back verbatim as to what I just said, like, like paragraphs and paragraphs and maybe two or three strings of letters or they're not even letters they're just like hieroglyphs yeah it was amazing we have to take a break we're going to come back talk more about the different work ethics from generation to generation and the pros and cons of what their mentality is this is life death and the law coming up more thought-provoking conversations on life death and the law right after this 
Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm attorney Adam Hanson, and I'm in the studio today with some special guests, one of my kids and two of Sean's, and Sean's in here too, just to make sure I don't beat him up too bad. And uh, we are grilling them as to, are they going to be good citizens in life or did we fail as parents? Yeah. Are they going to be productive members of society or are they just going to be... Losers. Somebody that is waiting around for their inheritance to kick in and uh, carry them throughout their life. <laughs> and honestly, the jury's still out, right? Yes. I mean, he's got a few years left, so <laughs> I get working... <laughs> So that's Gracie that was just uh, talking. And then we've got Wesley. These are uh, Sean's oldest two kids. Gracie, how old are you again? 21. 21. And then Wesley? I'm 18. You're 18, just graduated high school, and soon to go out to Sweden on a church mission, right, for yes. two years? Yes. And so you're, in, you're actively learning Swedish. I know that because you're on my Duolingo app somehow. <laughs> I don't know how, but it shows me where you're at and your progress. It's kind of creepy. But I commend you because you're pretty far along in Swedish. How, how many days are you consistent on um, Duolingo learning Swedish? 81. 81 days. Now, th this is what I'm talking about. It is something, it's a skill that you're acquiring that is tough. And it's going to be tough. Now, you hear on the radio ads with Duolingo or whatever gimmick they have these days to learn a language. And they say, learn to speak such and such language in three weeks, 15 minutes a day. And I'm like, that is ridiculous. So, Wesley, you can attest that regardless of the technology out there, you're not going to learn a language in three weeks, 15 minutes a day. No, you're going to take a lot longer than that. But is it worth it so far? Have you felt a sense of satisfaction out of all the work that you've put into it 82 days in a row? Did you say 82? 81. 81 days in a row. Yeah, I felt a lot of satisfaction. Just being able to not only see my progress, like Adam said, like and see like where I'm at, but being able to see little signs that my work is actually paying off. Now, I want to focus a little bit more on this. Why are you learning Swedish? Do you think it's going to help you become wealthier or make your life easier? It might make my life a little easier. Why? Because when I go to Sweden, um, they do speak a lot of English, actually. 90% of them do speak English, but I think I'm going to be able to talk to them in their own language because it's not only more personal to them, but it's also just a little bit deeper level for them because if they speak English, if it, that's like me speaking Swedish. It's not very 
deep for me. I'm just learning on that. But for them, it's being able to do something they're familiar with. So it might make what my mission is to teach our gospel a little bit easier. Okay, so the purpose of teaching the, the, the individuals, how does that help you? How does that make your life more rich or easier or for... For most people, what they see as the benefits of life is having more money or an easier path. How, how is that so? Is, it, is that the case? In terms of overall life, in terms of riches, no, yeah. it's not going to help. No. What you're doing is you're serving. You are called to... Serve. Serve individuals. So learning Swedish is helping you serve these individuals. I think that is the ingredient that is missing. What... All the politicians out there, all the individuals out there that are looking for this policy that is going to solve all the social woes that we encounter today, they come up with, well, if we pay reparations to this group, then then we'll finally come together and love one another without you know racial discrimination. If we give the poor free health care and free housing and free food, then we'll finally be in a just society. That's wrong. You will become more satisfied with life when you learn to serve someone else and, and, and put them, their needs, before yours. And I think that's why God called you to become a missionary at the age that you are. Now, Gracie, you served a mission, and you can testify to this because it's a recent experience for you. Is that true? Yeah, of course. Yeah. What what did you learn in serving others? Was life more empty or more satisfying and full and enriched? I think I came home and struggled with having to shift my focus so much because you feel so fulfilled just thinking about others day in, day out because you don't, that's not something you get paid for and it's something that's on a volunteer basis and so it, it took, obviously, it wasn't a natural um, transition. It takes a few months before it becomes um, a bit more, it be- becomes easier, essentially. But it, it is the most fulfilling thing to just think about others. And you feel full and you feel satisfied. So coming home, it, it felt like there's almost like this drop-off because I, I didn't have that role anymore, which, of course, I can continue to do that. But it's, it's not And do easy. you? I try. <laughs> so you continue to serve, yet you are learning and you're acquiring skills that will allow you to become productive in society and support your family and yourself and become independent. Yeah. So Dominic. Yeah. Has your dad talked to you about serving a mission? Uh, yeah. Has your dad served a mission? Yes. Has he told you about it? What, what, what has he expressed? If there was an underlying theme that he has... Um, communicated to you about his mission, what would that be? I think it's um, you put in the work and you'll get rewarded. In what way? Did he get rich off of going to Spain on his mission? No, I think more of spiritual fulfillment and a sense of purpose um, and doing the greater good. What do you think, Adam? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think he hit it on the head. And I would add one more thing, and that would be work ethic. Uh, I, and you'd probably agree with this too. You and I kind of have similar backgrounds where we weren't the best students in high school or growing up. And it wasn't for me speaking for myself. It wasn't until my mission that I really 
learned how to study and had a desire to do it. Like I had this thirst for knowledge and it happened to be, you know, with the scriptures at the time. But then I just translated that to when I got home after my service of two years, I got home and I went right into school and it was super easy. And as it was easy to stand out because others around me hadn't come to that um, enlightenment, I guess, of how they could be thirsty for knowledge. And so it was really through my mission that I learned to love learning and how to do that on an expedited level, because you and I both had to learn a language at the same time as learning um, what we were helping people to do or, or um, know. And so we had to really expedite our learning. And, and so you, you learned Portuguese down in Brazil and I learned Spanish in in Spain. And uh, Sean, you've told me multiple times. I mean, it was, it was difficult in Brazil. I, I feel bad because Spain is not a third world country. I was just talking to my brother about this a couple of days ago. He went to Ecuador and he's talking about how they had to sleep in, under mosquito nets every night. You had to make sure these things were zipped up and it was already hot as it was. And so it's like a baking you in this oven, but the mosquitoes would just eat you alive. If you didn't do that, there are monkeys constantly stealing their stuff. And there's just all these stories, you know, and they, li- they lived in, in these huts with dirt, you know, and I'm like, oh man, that sounds fun. I, and I, I hesitated to tell him like all my places were right on the beach it was like crown moldings and running hot water like a bad day would be oh man we didn't pay the the uh the bill for our gas so we have to wait a day to get hot water you know because we have to wait for them to bring our propane tank refilled but um yeah it was a different experience as far as daily living and i know it was for you as well in brazil but that's all part of your experience and i i truly believe that my experience was for me and your experience in Brazil was unique to you. And that's why you need to go through that because Sean needed to go through that experience there in Brazil. You know, that's absolutely right. And I think that God, 100%, I'm a believer in God and Jesus Christ and that they have a plan for us and that they tailor make our obstacles and our struggles to help us become the best that we can, to help us achieve our full potential. And we all have different obstacles, but we all also have different levels of potential. And so when you look at it that way, when you're looking at the perfect tutor that lines up your lessons in a way that will help you develop to become your best self, then that's what it is. Now, here's a very hippie point of view that the universe is all intertwined and we're all part of this great big one with the earth and with nature and with the universe. I believe that. I think that's true. There's, there's truths in all competing religions and theories. Now, some take it a bit far, but I believe that truth and reality, the closer you get to it, the more you will see that Hard things are necessary. The struggle is a necessary uh, requirement for you to grow. And once you understand that and understand the need for that, then you can embrace it. And happiness is nothing more than a frame of mind. You can be happy struggling or you can be absolutely miserable in a mansion filled with luxuries. Now, let me, let me um, give it a brief analogy. Let's say that there's a sports team, right? 
and they go through this tournament. It's a grueling tournament. Let's, let's talk about the, the basketball tournament, right? Um, so March Madness. The, the teams that are the happiest are what, what teams? The teams that lose or the teams that win? Win. win. Right, absolutely, the teams that win. But what does it take to win in the offseason and during practice? It takes what? Hard work and dedication. A bunch of hard work, but they grasp onto it. They love it. They love those drills. They love those practices, those early morning um, wake-up calls. And if they win, they get to play again. Those games are exhausting. They're mentally just wearing them down, and they put them in a spotlight where they could fail in front of millions of people and become embarrassed. But they seek that opportunity. And life, sports is such a great analogy for life because in sports, you strive to work hard to gain that opportunity to work hard again. Because if they win, they get to play another game. If they lose, they get to go home. And they get to go home and chill out. Eat snacks, eat junk food, go swimming, do whatever. If they win... They stay dedicated, they stick on their diet, they stick together with the team, and they continue to work, but they're happy. And that's the same thing with work in life. If you say, well, as soon as I retire, as soon as I make enough money that I don't have to do this thing, then I'll be happy. No, you'll be happy when you work hard enough to reach the next level of contribution to your society, to your family, to your other employees, and that's where true happiness lies. That's all the time that we have for today. This is Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. Hey, Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.